good morning. It's great to be here with you, and uh, thank you for that introduction. Um, I didn't expect that there would be a long list of the, the things that might characterize sort of my immediate life, um, but I'm glad that that happened. And as I was reflecting on this passage that we just heard read, this little short, beautiful, small, very familiar, very memorable, very evocative passage, um, it's, this is one that has stuck with me for many, many years and been very important to me. And I've never really quite been sure why it stuck with me as much as it has, other than the reasons I just gave you, until just now. It actually just came to me. And so if I shed a little bit of emotions, it's not usually the Anglican style. We're known as the frozen chosen. Um, but if I do that, it's going to be more uncomfortable for me than it is for you. Um, we'll see what happens. Um, so I've, I'm married to Ruthia, wonderful woman, and we've got two great kids, uh, Ruthia, uh, sorry, Sophia and Alma. And Alma is named after my grandmother on my dad's side. And I've got to say that growing up, um, to me, Christianity was inseparable. Christianity wasn't an idea. It was stuff that happened supernaturally. Because that's the stories my dad told me about rural Trinidad, poverty, and you had these highly principled people. It was just so fantastical. Highly principled people that had such faith. And in my dad's case, in his family, there was a lot of poverty. But there was also manifestations of the spirit. The supernatural was always involved. So me as a kid, I just soaked that stuff up. And one of the stories that sticks with me and is the reason why this passage, I just finally realized why it's been so important to me is this. My grandmother, whose name was Alma, after whom my second child was, was named, um, was quite poor. Her husband died when he was only in his 30s, mysteriously in his sleep, leaving her without work, uh, without a lot of recourse um, in rural Trinidad, uh, no job, and five kids to take care of. So times were tough, and every so often, times would be really tough where I'm sure she was thinking about how she was going to feed these kids. And my mind right now turns to something that she left for my dad uh, in her will, which was a soup bowl. And she deliberately said, I want my son, Henry, the youngest, to have this soup bowl. And one of the, one of the handles on the soup bowl is broken off. And my dad wondered why. She always, she always had a meaning, a reason for the things that she did. And through reflecting on it, oh, like this meager soup bowl was a vehicle by which God's sustenance and love came into the family in poor times. And it was broken. It was not whole. Uh, but it still served that vehicle again for God's love and provision. So let me tell you the supernatural bit that for a kid like me, eyes were wide open when I heard this story and they still are today. Times were especially tough. And um, one day she heard a knock at the door. Uh, the, she opens the door and she sees that it's a beggar. Uh, as it was in Trinidad at that time, people who were really, really hard up would walk from home to home, walk up the long driveways, knock on the door, and hopefully get a, a couple of little coins to, to, to go on their way. So my granny, who was not doing so great herself, recognized need, goes back into the house, takes a little half penny at the time, I can't remember exactly what the currency is called, but takes his little half penny, goes to give it to this man, he puts out his hand, and there was a hole in it. There was a hole in his hand. 
Now, for some of you, that might throw your theological frameworks for a total loop. But there was a hole in this man's hand. And she fell into the state of stunned ecstasy, fell on the ground, and was semi-conscious. I don't even know if she knew how to really define it. She wasn't completely out. And soon after, uh, a little child came to her house, one of the relatives. I'm not too sure which one it was. And she quickly said, run down the street. You've got to find a man. He's in this robe. You've got to bring him back here. And of course, did this little child find this man? No. So at a time of radical poverty in her own life, God did not come in a thundering cloud with overwhelming power to show her, uh, to frighten her into faith. He came to her as she was. There's something about the poverty of God that speaks more powerfully to us in our times of need than anything else does. And this is why this passage means so much to me. Well, let's look at that passage a little bit more. Jesus is there in the, in the flesh with his disciples. And he's in uh, the temple courts, this big, sprawling, huge complex with people from all over the world coming to worship and to take a look at this uh, magnificent thing, edifice of the ancient world. And so people would come again from all over Israel and spread abroad to take part in worship and just to see what, what is going on in this place. Why are people gathered around this place in Israel? And part of what worship was characterized as it is today is to give financially, to give out of your own means to the work and the mission of God's presence in that in Israel and as it spread out into the neighboring territories. And there's a large treasury box that was centrally located for people to drop in their gifts. And so you'd have wealthy people dressed very well in big sacks of coins because they didn't have paper. There's no e-transfers back then. So you take your bag of money, drop it into a very visible box, landing with this loud, confident thud. Wow, so impressive. But Jesus is watching all this happen with his disciples around him. And he sees uh, an obscure and poor widow that works her way through the crowd. Nobody would notice her. And she walks slowly and humbly over to that treasury and she drops in two little coins. The lowest denomination that there was at the time called the lepta. Or as the King James Version calls it, two mites. Because this is the story of the widow's mite. So there was no need for any sort of sack when you have those two little coins, it's just it's like pocket lint. He drops it in. And he watched her slipping in and slipping out of the crowd. Again, what nobody ever noticed that this had happened. So he turns to those around him and he says, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, gave all that she had to live on. Okay, so she gave all, all she had, and this uh, uh, is something that Jesus commended her for, and this was not a good example of proportional stewardship, because there's no proportion. It was all, and Jesus commended her for it. Now, there's usually two reactions to the story, at least two, but let me sort of outline a couple main reactions to this story. One, 
We can either try to resonate with her as kind of like a helpless victim of society who is freed up to give because of her weaker position. We can kind of identify with her, perhaps. We can try to along those lines, or probably more accurately, number two, we can feel convicted and guilty that uh, we in a position, many of us in a position of real privilege and power are not doing enough, are not giving enough. And we measure ourselves by what she did. And there may be some merit to both those explanations, but I'm going to suggest that Jesus was speaking along a different line. When he saw this woman do what she did, he was looking along this different line altogether. The rich that day, they gave proportionately from their wealth, their power and their agency to choose and parse out their strength, in this case financially. And there's nothing wrong with that. We are called to give generously, but the widow, she didn't give from a position of her own wealth, but she gave from the position of her poverty. She gave from a very different place altogether. This woman was poor, she was empty, she had nothing, and true poverty in the ancient world, you didn't have a lot of recourses to fall back on, especially if you're a widow. You don't have family to protect you and, and care for you, usually, and there wasn't social services agencies to kind of help you get back on your feet. It's a very, very vulnerable place to be. She gave out of a position of poverty. And Jesus says that to God, giving from this place in her heart was giving more than all the coins that could have piled up and over that treasury that day. Why did Jesus value this poor widow's story so much that he shared it with not just those who were with him that day, but Luke chose to enter it into his gospel so that we today, along with the countless generations throughout the centuries, millions of people have meditated and chewed on this story? Well, the Apostle Paul, who knew Jesus as much as anybody else, he said these words in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, through his poverty he gave to you. So the richness or wealth of Jesus that Paul speaks of here is on a completely different level than the Warren Buffetts and the Bill Gates of this world is incomparable. In fact, Jesus set the conditions by which we'd even begin to think about what wealth is. That's his power. He spoke that into existence and the capacity for us to even understand these kinds of concepts. He's way above surpassing anything we can imagine when it comes to wealth. And before Jesus was born into the flesh as a human being, as we know, the Son of God was in a place of complete and total joy and peace without the weight of time or physicality or suffering or evil or sin, delighting eternally in this intimate, eternal communion with the surpassing sweetness of heaven in the triune God, a perfect community, surpassing wealth and glory. He spoke existence into life on earth. He created us all from all eternity, and he provided the scaffolding by which we can know or imagine anything. For example, as I just mentioned, wealth. He had nothing to prove by coming here. He had no need where he was. And if we can put it this way, once again, he was wealthy beyond all imagination. But again, 
Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. He died for this world where there was so much that has gone wrong. And you students here today and teachers and those who are here at, I was going to say Wycliffe, no we're not at Wycliffe, at Tyndale, however the reasons you are here, are we not growing in our own individual and collective ways in a deep sense of worry and anxiety about this world? And there's a sense of isolation. And don't we look out beyond graduation into an increasingly uncertain future? With shifting markets and shaky unemployment, Western society as a whole is straining to stay coherent with this philosophical faith in individualism and secularism that is showing massive cracks day by day. The fabric of church life itself is being stretched and in many cases it's torn with division. I know that very much in my Anglican family. Theological confusion, worrying decline, and sometimes an incoherent or missing vision. And then add to that our role, either implicitly or explicitly, in contributing to these things that are going on in our world. Jesus Christ came to deal with this. And as C.S. Lewis describes it, he came clandestinely behind enemy lines. His face set towards all the evil, all the suffering, all the sin, and all the death that we ourselves are responsible for. He needed to come to deal with what we could not fix ourselves. And if he was to remain in heaven and pronounce these poetic words of forgiveness abstractly from afar, it would not have solved this crisis that we suffer. And if he came to earth in power and in great wealth, he wouldn't have gotten to the heart of it. He'd exist as a Teflon-coated savior that couldn't relate or get into our world through the poverty of our existence. He came to, and he chose to be with us in obscure poverty and radical vulnerability. It is in this particular place where his goodness truly identified with us. And this is the most important. In weakness, it was through his flesh, his, even his flesh, that he could truly submit himself as both God and man to all the evil forces of hell that were thrown at him on that cross that day on Calvary. Once again, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. All of human darkness and sin was drawn out by his own goodness and his own perfection. It was listed out, it, it, it was drawn out by his goodness and he hung there in complete submission and poverty. He was totally overwhelmed by it, crushed by the evil of this world. But most of all, he suffered this staggering loss of what was most important to him. Taking upon himself all the horrors of human doing by assuming and bringing onto his shoulders all responsibility for it in the face of a God of justice, he lost the true eternal delight of his heart. This, again, this eternal, enduring, reciprocal, beautiful, unimaginable relationship in the sweetness of heaven with his Father and the Holy Spirit. And in an agony he, we could not possibly imagine, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The kind of love and sacrifice that God has given for us in the death of Jesus Christ is impossible for us to put into words. And I remember my own preaching teacher, Fleming Rutledge, who some of you may have heard that name. 
she would talk about the theologians and the ways that they stretched language as far as humanly possible to try and make sense and describe the cost that was paid and the love of God that was within it. Well, as I started out today, sometimes it's best to think about this and the, the love of God in the context of a, a real lived experience. And I, talk, I told you about my granny, Alma. Uh, there's another woman who lived in the 14th century, and this time in England, and she was likely a poor widow herself who had lost her family in a time of plague, who was suffering herself of, with a debilitating illness, and her name was Julian of Norwich. And in her own extreme poverty, not just financially, but a flesh, again, she was close to death and illness, Jesus came to her. And as she drew closer to death, she experienced over time what she described as 16 visions of Jesus Christ. She recovered from her sickness, and she spent the next years of her life writing and praying and meditating on what she saw, what she experienced. And, and listen to these words, how simple and beautiful this interchange is between Jesus and Julian. She recalled it like this. Then the good Lord asked me, are you happy that I suffered for you? I said, yes, good Lord, and I thank you very much. Yes, good Lord, may you be blessed. Then Jesus, our good Lord, said, if you are happy, I am too. To, to suffer the passion for you, for me, is a joy a bliss, eternal delight, and if I could suffer more, I would. Now this, this is the love of God. Sometimes we can get sort of cut off on the idea of a Jesus who simply paid a price that doesn't quite 100% connect with our hearts, but if we have an intimate personal savior that says to you personally, that if I could suffer for you more, I would. Something else unlocks. When we come to the cross from a position of poverty, as that woman did that dropped those two coins in, things begin to unlock for us. Not just with having right doctrines, as important as they are, but a life transformation that changes us from the inside out. We come to God before him and saying, I have nothing to offer. I don't even have two coins to rub together. Then I would say the heavenly magic of heaven, the loving savior, the profound ways in which we are transformed truly begin to unlock for us. I want to finish by reading a very famous passage from Philippians 2. Uh, many of us have studied this for a long time but in the context of the poverty of God and the poverty of these women. Let's hear this passage for again for the first time. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, no matter who we are, no matter where we are from, no matter our economic status, we so often process this life and process our relationships with others, with ourselves, and with you from a position of wealth and power. We pray that through the agency and the delight of your Holy Spirit that you would enter into our hearts and tell us the truth. Show us our emptiness. Show us our radical poverty so that we can meet you in the great love that you have shed for us so abundantly on the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, my friends, the peace of God, which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be amongst you and remain with you this day and always. Amen.